Hello and welcome to the Vorthos cast. I'm Lorelai Weissel-Labrizzi. I'm Chris Delano. And I'm Carrie Thomas. And we're here with another wonderful episode of the Vorthos cast where we're discussing hot topics uh, like will AI replace everything? Even dust bunnies. Who knows? The physics implications for video games behind that. This is I'm going to stop this bit now before it gets too far, <laughs> because you. the ridiculousness <laughs> yeah. is what all these things sound like. We were we were discussing this before the show. Uh, mostly that's not true. We were making fun of it before the show. Uh, <laughs> see, see, the thing is, Lorelai, that AI is not really a hot topic anymore. We're going to discuss a real hot topic, some real fresh news uh, this week. And by that, I mean, we're reading a story from 1996. Uh, yeah, baby. <laughs> almost 30 years old. Hold on, I, I, I have to check something. Uh, okay, good. Love these long silences that I added out later. I, I, well, okay, <laughs> okay so uh, I have checked and Hot Topic is older than this story. Like, the store. The very good, excellent clothing store for adults who are sad a lot and listen to My Chemical Romance. I need to know when Hot Topic opened. When was uh, the first Hot Topic? October 1989. 1989. Hot Topic is older than I am. I the first one in uh, first one opened in Montclair, California. That checks out. I need to get us to not be on a tangent about Hot Topic because yes. I we could easily fall into that. There is a Magic Con in Las Vegas, and they showed off cards and art. And told us Kellen is back. Surprise. Who thought Kellen would be back in the Kellen arc? Um, what is Selesniafication is real? What does that uh, mean in these notes? Because Kellen was white red. And now his new card is white green. And there is a worrying pattern of Planeswalkers being white red in their first printing. And then being white green in their second one. Or later down the line. And so I'm just saying, Selesnification is real. All these characters are going from Boros to Selesnia. This happened to both Ajani and Watley. Yes. I mean, there's a good chance he might encounter Watley. We know that Watley and Sahili are desparked, but together on Ixalan. Uh, we know it takes place approximately a year after March of the Machines, I believe. March of the Machine, mm. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, all the <laughs> machine loyalists. And the entire story drops october 20th all at once read it all that day take off work disconnect your phone um do everything so that you can absorb the story all in one day or you're not a real fan in my opinion um <laughs> don't actually do any of that <laughs> there there is like three days between the story drop or and uh like the official start of previews and stuff so like even though it's all coming out at once assuming that it's and like a, a good amount of story um assuming we're getting at least the normal five story amount um you don't need to read it all in one sitting you can yeah. read a couple of stories a day um there won't be any big spoilers you can't avoid by just like not being on the internet yeah hopefully um, hopefully tamio phyrexian card situation isn't dropped for like spoiler for episode four five minutes after the entire thing has dropped so We'll see. Um, but today... I want to say, Chris, a bold assumption uh, on your part that I know how to read. 
<laughs> well, I hope at least some of us know how to read on this podcast because that's what we're doing today. I'm listening. I don't know any been talking that's those are i don't need to read for those yeah so checkmate atheists in continuing the story circle idea from last week we are going back to 1996 on the internet a site dedicated to magic fiction called encyclopedia dominia Uh, still on the wizards.com domain but a subset of pages that were specifically looking at flushing out the magic multiverse. Um, it was an offshoot of the Duelist magazine and all focused about the lore and kind of connecting the lore to the cards that had seen print up until that point for a few years. Um, and it originally was going to be a project for a book by Pete Venters, I believe. Was that the roleplay game book, Chris? Uh, I think there. So from what I read, doing my little bit of research for this, um, Pete Venters had envisioned Encyclopedia Dominia being turned into like its own sort of coffee table book situation with like stories and information and pictures, um, sort of like the uh, the book we just got from Jay, the DK uh, uh, magic book um, in that sense with like little bits of lore and things you can kind of like look into. Um, I, I think it was a separate thing from the role-playing game. Uh, I could be wrong, but like, again, this is, you know, 30 year old information. Um, so things could have been different back then. It wasn't, uh, particularly like well-documented. Yeah. And admittedly early internet. We're lucky that these are saved by Wayback machine. Um, but also can't imagine that many people got to experience this site to its fullest even in comparison to last week's Kamigawa block era story. Um, This one was posted between the time of Mirage and Vision's release dates and totally unrelated to those actual card sets because it is set on Rabia. That's right. The plane that has a handful of stories and was retrofit to make itself into magic canon, but we'll we'll touch more on that (laughs) later. The actual... In real world, author is unknown. There is an attribution at the beginning for an in fiction author, author, which is something we also saw a lot of with the Duelist magazine. Although the Duelist, you could just flip to the front and usually find the real person <laughs> attribution. But with that out of the way, um, we're going to hop right into Eater of the Infinite. Eater of the Infinite, as told by Farouk Ab Allah. This is Taysir's note at the beginning. I chose this story for inclusion in the encyclopedia because its style is distinctive to the legends of Rabia. It is also an interesting tale of the creation, or recreation if you will, of two important peoples and beings, the Serendibifrits and the desert nomads. That's the end of the note. The story begins. Blessed are we who live in Rabia, which is but one of infinite Rabias, for our gods smile upon us and grant us bounty of which other people can but dream. In this time of bounty, it is difficult to believe that such a land could ever be endangered, yet there was once existed on this very sand a Serendibifrit, whose heart was so cold and jealous he could not stand the thought of other beings sharing the same earth as he. This Ifrit fumed for years, 
vowing to the winds that one day none but he would walk Rabia's endless lands, and while he muttered to himself he searched for a way to make his vow complete. One day, a foreign planeswalker called upon the Ifrit to aid him in battle. The Ifrit performed heroically, and when the battle was done the planeswalker agreed to grant the jealous creature a wish. One can only assume granting a wish to an Ifrit amused the young walker, for why else would the magic wielder make such an offer? Seizing upon this opportunity for which he had waited for years, the Ifrit declared that he wished to be the only creature to be able to walk the lands of Rabia. Taken aback by the Ifrit's brash desire, the planeswalker pondered the request. Finally, after much thought, he reached out and placed a jewel on the Ifrit's forehead. Working magic unknown to us in these modern times, the walker split the Ifrit's mouth in two. He then turned his will upon the Ifrit's left hand, changing it into a hooked knife sharper than the grandmother's tongue. With these changes I grant your wish, Ifrit, the walker declared. Anything that you cut with your left hand shall shrink to the size of a sandbug. Any such creature you swallow with your left mouth will disappear from all Rabias for all eternity, as will all other creatures of its kind. With enough perseverance, you may soon walk the plains of Rabia in perfect solitude. Glorying in his newly granted power, the Frit turned to the first creature he saw and speared it with his left hand. No sooner had he done so than the poor creature shrunk to exactly the size of a sandbug, and the Frit popped, popped it into his left mouth and swallowed it whole. Just what the Frit ate we do not know, for the creature and all of its cousins no longer exist in our lands. Greatly pleased with his success, the Frit declared himself the Eater of the Infinite. From that moment on, the Eater searched out all the creatures he could find and began casting them and their kin out of Rabia. For a fortnight, the Eater's appetite ran unchecked. But then a young bird, ma bird maiden by the name of Fira witnessed the Eater destroy a whole herd of beasts by merely shrinking and eating one. After quietly following him for a day and a night, Fira soon realized that the Eater was destroying untold numbers of creatures. Praying to all the gods she knew, Fira landed on a rocky outcropping near the Eater just as Dawn blessed Rabia with her first blush. Why do you eat these beasts, Afrit? Laughing, the Eater responded, Why, because I can, and because with every creature I eat, I eat every one of its kin on all of the Rabias. Soon I shall have Rabia to myself. Come closer, little bird maiden that your kind may join the infinite inside me. Shaking her head in fear, Fira flew off quickly into the morning sun, as he was in a lazy mood, and perhaps because he reveled in Fira's fear. The eater did not pursue the terrified bird maiden. Flying on the morning winds, Fira wondered how she could possibly stop the eater from casting all creatures out of the Rabia. Flying on the morning winds, Fira wondered how she how she could possibly stop the eater from casting all creatures out of Rabia. Although her fear carried her for the entire day, Fira finally grew too tired to continue. Alighting upon the cooling evening sands, she sobbed quietly to herself. Why do you cry to yourself, winged one? A voice whispered from the shadow of a large dune. Who are you? Fira exclaimed. I am but a watcher, and I see you have met the eater of the infinite, the shadowy figure replied. Yes, I have, and I fear Rabia will soon be his and no one else's, Fira responded. Perhaps, but then again, perhaps not. Take the gift I leave you and wake the man you shall find asleep on the other side of this dune. The eater may destroy with his left mouth, but there is balance in all things. There is a right for every left, a beginning for every end. 
Tell the young nomad you wake of the eater, and of my words. Together you may yet save your home. Fira was bursting with questions, but before she could ask even one, the shadowy figure shimmered and faded with the wind. Only a small but bulky carpet, neatly rolled, remained. Upon unrolling this, Fira immediately re realized from its woven pattern of wings and swirls that the stranger's gift was a flying carpet. Still pondering the stranger's words, Fira took up the carpet and flew over the large dune. Lo and behold, exactly where the stranger said he would lie, there rested a young nomad. Fira silently thanked the gods for bringing him to this dune. She landed beside the scruffy man and called out softly to him. When he awoke, she introduced herself and poured out the entire of her story to the solemn nomad. The man, whose name was Pakir, listened intently to the bird maiden's story. When she finished, he said, Thank you for telling me this tale, maiden. When I left my family's camp this morning, I went to find a place to die. For you see, I am the last of the nomads. The others have died from a terrible plague. The world will grieve our loss, yet perhaps now I may end our family's saga in glory instead of infamy. Pakir finished. But who was the man who instructed us? Does that matter? Either he tells the truth and we may save our land, or else he lies and all is lost. We can only try. Nodding her head, Fira took to the air with Pakir following on the flying carpet and traveled back to the way she had come on the previous day. The pair finally found the eater nearing the city of Besora. Stretching her shimmering wings to their fullest, Fira swooped round and round the eater, calling and taunting the would-be world killer. The eater eagerly followed the darting maiden as she maneuvered him away from the city with its teeming multitudes. When the eater was judged to be far enough removed from the city to ensure no one else was endangered, Pakir screamed out his family's name and plunged directly at the frit. The eater's two mouths opened wide with glee as he deftly speared Pakir on his left hand, shrinking and twisting the young nomad. At that moment, Fira again swooped down and swiftly shoved the now tiny Pakir into the Frit's open right mouth. A right for every left, a beginning for every end, she chanted, as the eater's eyes grew wide with horror. For when Pakir's dying body entered the eater's right mouth, all of the nomad's direct ancestors appeared again across Rabia, alive and well. But Fira and Pakir weren't finished with the eater. As soon as the Frit's left hand touched the inside of his right mouth, his enormous, unquenchable hunger grew even more immense. Swallowing and swallowing, the eater's right mouth soon consumed first his hand and then his arm. In rapid order, the eater of the infinite swallowed himself piece by piece until only the echoes of his enraged screams were left upon the air. Yet, in the very moment that the eater consumed himself and disappeared from Rabia, Dozens of other Serendibifrits were born upon the land. Each Ifrit was marked with the double mouth and hook of its progenitor. Yet, fortunately for us, the new Ifrits did not possess the eater's dread power. They do, however, possess a curse, for all Serendib are bitter with the legacy of defeat, and any who wish to summon or command one would do well to think twice on the matter. The Serendib curse, those who would use them, as did the long-ago planeswalker, cause suffering and pain to the magic worker so long as they work in his or her service. And what of Fira? She became a heroine of her people, as did Pakir for his, for Fira told the desert nomads of his great sacrifice on their behalf. And who was the man who told Fira how to defeat the Eater? That is something we shall never know. Perhaps it was a god who took pity upon our lands, or perhaps a planeswalker. 
even the very planeswalker who granted the eater his fell power. We must be content with our knowledge of how the Serendipifrits came to possess two mouths, and how the nomads will walk forever upon our lands. All right. And yeah, that's uh, that was a a very short story, but I think that is uh, in keeping with the sort of genre that it's working in. Well, so you uh, you know what they call those kind of stories, right? They're called short stories. uh all right so some general vibes how are we feeling about the eater of the infinite by author unknown um i thought it was uh, i thought it was really good i think that it's interesting to see magic uh in 1996 like all that way far long ago sort of playing in like a new uh i don't want to say new playing with old genres and styles of storytelling uh, to tell a story within this, what is at the time, brand new fantasy setting. Yes. Um, I thought that was particularly uh, exciting. It's the kind of thing that uh, I think you'd expect more to happen today, you know, 30 years in playing with like, you know, this sort of aggrandizing style of writing, like what is essentially uh, a, a story told in like an oral tradition uh, creation myth type story. Um, rather than telling, you know, in 1996, when the game is literally in its creation years, um, telling that kind of story. But like, how many years did we go from 1996 until the next iteration of this style of adaptation from the real world source material? Because like, Magic pretty cleanly went back to Dominaria, and then stayed mm -hmm. on Dominaria. And then we didn't get kind of true top-down magic sets until you're kind of approaching Innistrad and Theros and Theros probably was if you if you want to consider Innistrad's um short story letters as a form of um adaptive storytelling in that way then maybe but Theros definitely was able to pull it off with in-world both uncharted realms that were happening at the time and in world text through flavor text and other supplements so i guess yeah i guess we did get the the love song of night and day around the same time we got this um, yes yes that as well yeah but yeah you mentioned top down um i will say i just a, a little side try there i do think that the the like epistemological storytelling that was happening in Innistrad block would be considered something very similar to this and that it's sort of adapting the top-down gothic horror genre and using what is sort of a staple of that genre um going back all the way to like frankenstein and dracula where a lot of the story is being told through letters um so i think that that counts um yeah, but, uh, definitely yeah. appropriate uh but yeah this is this is a very top-down story in a lot of ways, one way being they they said, hey, we're going to write a story that's done in like a thousand and one Arabian Nights style. Uh, and then also we're going to tell a story that is about like three or four cards from the set Arabian Nights. Yes, that is that is the absurdity. I think we'll um, we can touch on it now. Mm -hmm. A lot of the stories and fiction that was being presented in Encyclopedia Dominia was specifically trying to get you to get that connection from card to lore and back and forth like yeah whether it succeeded or not debatable considering the relevance of these 
cards and characters 30 years later. But good effort. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that's really weird about this story uh, is like, why do the wh why does the free look like? Because when you go look at the Arabian Nights card, for some mm -hmm. reason, Anson Maddox illustrated a thing with two mouths and a hook at, on its left hand. And like the story is like, hey, why does this thing in, on the magic card look so funky? We're going to explain that diegetically. Uh, and this is a thing that happens a lot in this era of magic fiction, uh, which, you know, sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's not. Uh, one of my favorite examples <laughs> is uh, there's a story in Distant Plains, uh, the yes. Granite Gargoyle one, uh, where a, a Granite Gargoyle and a Shivan Dragon become friends because they both draw power from the mountain. And while one gets power, the other gets toughness, so they can't actually fight each other. And so they become friends. And so, like, the mechanical interaction of, well, this one boosts its power and this one boosts its toughness gets worked into this, like, short and really cute story. Um, and and this story, I think, does, like, like, it not only explains the two mouths and the hook hand, but also explains why this Aaron Ifrit card deals damage to you because it's yes. the bearer of the skin. <laughs> and it's just, like... Yeah, okay, okay, we get it. But but also like the 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 thing in this story where I I think they go a little far with that is uh they put the magic carpet in the story. <laughs> the flying carpet. Yeah. Uh, they just decide to throw that one in there. Yeah, I so guess. Uh, the flying carpet exists for the bird lady who can already fly. No, it, it exists, exists because the nomad needs to fly. Yes. Got it. So the plane But like knows but also she flies fly. on it. She does fly on it. I thought that was really funny. <laughs> I think it was even like, to like get to the other side of the sand dune. It wasn't like elaborate. Well, what was she going to do? Carry it? Yeah. Like, <laughs> might as well, you know. Less um, effort. But but no, it, it it's very interesting. The the sort of aspects of the cards they wanted to highlight here, because I, I was certainly reading this story. And as I was reading it, I was like, why does the Afrit look like that? Like, why would the Planeswalker do that? And I was so confused. And then I thought to myself, wait a minute, doesn't the Serendib Afrit art look really weird? And then I had to go Google it because I was like, oh, okay. So this is all just to do yeah. that. Um, which it's great. There is a piece of art created for this story that uh, it had to have been created for this story. It, I don't think it, it's definitely not on a uh, on a magic card anywhere. Um, that depicts the three main characters and the Ifrit, the yes. uh, the bird maiden and the desert nomad who's on the flying carpet, um, which is really cool. I mean, it looks just like they took their card art, basically, and like, put them all together. Um, but it is it's really fun. Uh, yeah. t t to me, this feels like it would be exactly at home in uh, I mentioned it. You really. So the problem with going back to this era of magic lore is I'm just not going to shut up about distant planes and tapestries. <laughs> uh, but it, but this is exactly the kind of story that would appear in one of those anthologies. I think there was a literal overlap between a brass man story and one of the anthologies uh -huh. and a separate brass man origin story provided on Encyclopedia Dominia. Amazing. So, eager to highlight the hits, hit cards that everybody was playing. <laughs> And, uh, 
I just totally lost my train. Yeah, no, uh, the the vibe of I, I always think it's interesting that we uh, I guess we're exiting the era, but magic for over 15 years was branded as you are a planeswalker. You these are the heroes of our stories when uh, in this era, you know, in, in the late 90s, um, planeswalkers were still the plant player analog but like every narrative about them was like, hey, planeswalkers are dog shit, am I right? And it's like, <laughs> I understand why, from a branding perspective, you maybe don't want your play player analogs to always be portrayed as just the worst people. Um, but this story, this story, and I, and I appreciate the ambiguity of the planeswalkers' role, like depending on how we read the ending, either this planeswalker was just like chaos gremlin. Yeah. Go do some crazy stuff. Um, or was deliberately trying to like, so there's a trope reversal of, um, the freak being the person who gets a wish from, I guess we don't know the planeswalkers species, but, we can generally assume human, the regular person, quote unquote, um, and and the regular person being the person who grants the wish and the magical freak being the thing that gets uh, wish comboed to death uh, unexpectedly, which is, you know, the inverse of how these stories usually go, where some guy finds a magical being gets a wish. The wish doesn't turn out the way they want. And, uh, you know, there's some kind of moralizing lesson about it or whatever. And, uh, using planeswalkers to invert this, um, is a, just acute narrative construction. Um, it's playing in a trope space. That act of play is a fun part of writing, but also puts the power of planeswalkers in perspective there is just the regular desert nomad who can die from sickness in this story. There are very powerful magical creatures like the Serendib Befreet. And then above that, even our planeswalkers who are as gods who can toy with anything they want. Um, I mean, they're, they're directly compared to gods in the, the frame of the story, wherein at the, end, the, the narrator says, like, was it a god? Was it a planeswalker? Could have been either. Yep. Who knows? Same thing. We were gods once. I love um, that, but like, I think a lot of people take the planeswalkers equal gods thing in the literal mechanical sense that was kind of used as an excuse softly during um, the mending. Like, oh, we can't have these characters on cards because they have like godlike powers. And then people were like, no, they're totally relatable. You don't have to change a thing about them. You don't have to depower them. But like, Nature of Dominia uh, article, which I believe was also reproduced in the 4th edition's Player's Guide um, by John Tynes, who was on the creative team at that point, starts off um, talking about stability of the multiverse and says, Dominia has gods, though it was not created by gods. These gods roam from world to world, plane to plane, reaping the energies of each in the form of mana, magical energy. They know each other by common name of planeswalkers. Like, you get to the point of these are the gods of the multiverse. Um, 
there's nothing really superseding the power of planeswalkers because they're able to go anywhere, take as much energy as they need, and outpower whoever they need to. So really, really tying into a, you know, close woven tapestry of like these planeswalkers that you're hearing about are powerful. They're also you, but also they're powerful in fiction, like made it clear from the start. You know, that's a really good metaphor. I think if they ever did like an anthology of stories about characters <laughs> no, impacted no, no. by planeswalkers, <laughs> they should like name the book Tapestry. Distant Plains, yeah. Uh, oh. <laughs> so so speaking of gods and gods of this, um, sort of jumping around a little bit in our notes to, to something I was going to bring up towards the end, but I think fits in really well here. Um, part of the like way that this story is functioning on a level of like magic is not just telling the story of the Serendib Afrit and the Desert Nomad and the Bird Maiden and all that, um, and like doing a top-down thing about cards. It's also like giving some fiction for uh, Rabia the Plane and making it a magic setting versus mm-hmm. what it was before, which was just the, it was just the thousand and one Arabian nights and other like references to Arabia um, within it. And it, it wasn't really a fantasy setting as so much as just drawing from real world legends and folk tales and, and religion even. Um, and part of the thing that I, I was going to bring up and, and um, I believe this was mentioned by uh, beer and Boar on multiverse and review um this is like they explicitly mention gods several times in the story because in arabian nights there are literally cards that just reference allah like the setting of arabian nights in magic before you know they decided hey this is a real magic plane just had real world like islam was just in the set And so they were like, hey, let's make sure people know that this is not uh, actual like real world Saudi Arabia. And this is this is a magic setting by uh, not having the card army of Allah mentioned and instead mentioning that there are multiple gods on this plane. Um, So I I thought was very interesting. Yeah. Um, Relating to that, the opening lines of the story is nearly a direct reference to the opening line of. 1001 Arabian Nights or 1001 Nights as Mm. the actual title will be, um, which is just like a whole paragraph of reverent praise for Allah. (laughs) And then in magic case, like you get a more inward facing. These gods can be nameless. They're specific to this plane. Um, We're not going to say anything or commit to anything, but we still want to parallel that a little bit and be like, we're blessed for living in this land. So it's a, for all of the faults of 1001 nights, um, including that most of the most famous stories from the collection are not original in the sense that you would probably assume they are. Um, Sinbad was part of an entirely different series of stories um, that got incorporated during translation and reselling of the um arabian nights entertainment at the time and then later on a frenchman named antoine guion 
decided that he needed to live up to the expectation of a thousand and one stories, and he only had a couple hundred that had been directly translatable, so he kind of just made up a whole <laughs> bunch of stuff, and I believe both Aladdin and Alibaba, which are probably the remaining two that people are familiar with and ended up in the Arabian Nights set, are not by him, or, or are not part of the original collection of stories, but were added on by him in the 1700s when he basically outsourced his story writing to whoever he could quote-unquote trust to relay folk tales of the region. So Sorry, it's so yeah. hard for me right now to not joke about how he would have been much more successful at creating authentic cultural experiences if he had access to AI writing. God. <laughs> but i mean so but i the, can't go down that road of joking the integrity of the 1001 nights is kind of a mishmash of just translations and storytelling being lopped on top of each other so um there are some original translations if you're curious but like the most popular one was definitely uh colonialists so <laughs> good luck yeah. i mean there's there's a lot to be said about wizards uh in their creation of arabian nights as well and the, the sort of like cultural dynamics set play there um we don't need to go deep into it uh but yeah, i that... do think that this yeah oh it's because <laughs> no chris i just have a joke uh that french mm -hmm. guy really should have gone to a liberal arts college so he could have read saeed's orientalism about 17 times and then gone to to work for uh wizards of the coast to make D D and oh, Magic no. the Gathering. <laughs> um hey i which... haven't i haven't made a universes beyond joke yet so i think that's very impressive of me <laughs> i just um yeah wizards of the coast did not have the greatest uh history for a while there and um i guess also the original creators of D D. I don't know who was involved in creating uh, the Oriental Adventures book, or whatever it was called, uh, that is one of the most, like... Infamous. Infamous, darkest parts of D&D &D history. Um, and that, uh, and yeah. that's a hard contest to win. That is a very hard contest to win. That's why I said it's one of, not the. I have no, I have no nice things to say about Gary Gygax and his ilk. Yeah, but uh, I do think that what this story does well, though, is it... It is playing in that genre space, um, adapting it for magic and making a story that uh, is very much magic specific. There are mm -hmm. no, you know, it's 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 good. It's a fun story. We don't know much about it. It's borrowing from the literary tradition uh, without being, I would say, like... I don't want to say it's like not offensive to write this, but it, I do think it that it wasn't this... weighed down by the baggage yeah. of the other uh, stories that were published, yeah. obviously in the source material. It it definitely is is better in that sense of that like it is someone playing within the tradition of what is what is what are the components of a story that is an oral tradition creation myth type story, um, and and using that with these wizard specific uh, creations. Um, and also, it's nice to know why the Serendipifrit looks so weird. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, 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 and I think it does a really good job of, like, we can talk about 
how a thousand and one nights gets this um cultural stratification over the years as things are translated or not or made up or added or removed and whatever uh and and this story engaging with the this is an oral tradition recorded by this person probably translated by um Taysir and included in an anthology with a f small foreword and so so it has that sense of hey this is a thing that has existed for a long time and has exchanged a you know a lot of cultural hands and uh that's neat um that is that is good world building texture i think yeah for something it's not like as this. deep on the framing story device of like compared to telling stories so you don't get killed but <laughs> it is it is uh Nice that they both decided that Taysir was going to be the chronicler mm -hmm. behind Encyclopedia Dominia and immediately used that to their advantage to be like, okay, we've got to write a handful of sanitized in the sense that they're disconnected from the real world, real world source material, but inspired by it and kind of mini stories. And we'll put those all out there and that will be all the Robbie Allure people get for... Uh, until March of the Machines, and then in March of the Machines, they'll get hopeful for it, and then it will never appear again. So. Hey, we got we got Robbie Allure in Dominar United. We got oh, the yes. Jin who uh, we crossed get, like, the barrier. So many few sprinkles of it, and people, I I I remember it, and I can't even remember it. You know, I literally have to catalog <laughs> that stuff. Yeah, this but. was this is also so when Pete was doing all this work, this is when like. This is the era where magic lore and world building was being congealed into something that had continuity, that had a canon of literature. And I use that in the actual definition of the word and not the way fandom uses it. Um, and in that regard, when you were building something like that, and building something that you are hoping to launch some products on. You know, we've... I don't know how many episodes we've referenced the Pete Venner's Magic the Gathering RPG, uh, but it's, like, really foundational in the history of magic lore. Um, mm -hmm. Thank you for the globe, Pete. Um, and so it makes a lot of sense to have taken, you know, the Arabian Nights set, which existed because early in magic... It was extremely haphazard what actually became sets. And someone was just like, hey, I like a thousand and one Arabian Nights. Let's put this stuff in a card set because we don't exactly know what our whole deal is with this game yet. And they were still figuring that out. And then this is where that starts getting like codified uh, internally. Um, and then somebody like Nebuchadnezzar. So, yeah. <laughs> it's like what else do you get at that point well le le uh, legends is legends is funny legends it's gotta be a, a little bit funny you know for how strange the pullback on having real world names in there was well and it's it's interesting like the way legends engages with 
these are literally just characters from someone's RPG campaign. And the way the Armada comics are, these are just characters from someone's RPG campaign type vibe. Uh, and the way that, you know, as someone who plays a lot of TTRPGs, the way you name characters and NPCs, like sometimes you just make names that make sense for a group that is meeting on their own. And that is the needs and requirements for that are very different than a mass marketed corporate product. Yes. Uh, and in the early days, you don't have that kind of division because it really was a small garage game company vibe. Um, and well, I think we can go back to that if we can get like arc two of the next three years to be like us playing D and D with Roy. I think that would probably be really fun. We just keep finding omens. <laughs> well, no, it's just it's amusing. It's amusing to me as someone who's played a normal amount of Baldur's Gate three because there is a I guess I guess spoiler alerts for Baldur's Gate three. But if you haven't been in it by now, I'm sorry. I'm going to scream about it a lot anywhere you find me. <laughs> um, but there's a major character who's just named Orpheus. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, that's not even like a fancy fantasy version of the name. You just named a space frog Orpheus. It's such a ripoff of the Matrix, honestly. Um, uh, it is true. That is true. I, I can't be responsible for naming uh, RPG characters right now. The last character I named in my D&D campaign was named Richard Gere. Okay. <laughs> I, well, I need to not be involved in Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Was, was this character's last name spelled G-E-A-R? Like the machine <laughs> part? No, it was uh, Richard Gear, and there were apostrophes in Richard and Gear just to kind of like break it up a Spice little bit. Spice it up, you know? Good. <laughs> okay, good. Anyways. Anyways, yeah, back to, to talking about the story. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Let's, let's talk no. about the story a little bit. Um, we get the kind of classic Arabian Nights style punishment. The creature is greedy and he simply wishes for more. And then in the end, he's able to consume himself. But like when you get to the sides of the heroes in this story, you have the Birdman Fira and you have the desert nomad Pekir. We have manufactured excuse for why Pekir is basically like the perfect person to do this. He has no loved ones who are still alive. He can hop right in there and basically resurrect his entire species. Um which again, desert nomad being a species is <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is this is very, very magic specific terminology. Um I won't I won't look into it too much past that, but um, it works in that order because you have to have like you have to have the gift of the flying carpet in order to kind of force the planeswalker into the narrative again, assuming it's the planeswalker. That's the mysterious stranger, of course, um, but it has to be in that order for the flying mechanic, which again just such a specific cut into the mechanical side of magic. Like we mm -hmm. need to get the desert nomad flying. So of course we're going to give him the flying carpet. Um, but tangent to all of that, this was where Encyclopedia Dominia shined when 
there were multiple pages linking from and to this. Um, linking to her pages for like the bird maiden, pages for the desert nomads, pages, pages for Basora, the city that the Eater of the Infinite was threatening during that little final encounter. Um, but on the Basora page, there is a whole mention of Shahrazad's gifts and how they are basically otherworldly or other plain objects that have ended up in this marketplace and the vendor has no idea how they got there. So you get this literal gift from a planeswalker and it is just kind of a nice tying events. Like if you're going to explore this site that they have made for you, then you're going to figure out that like, oh, the flying carpet is like a specific item and them getting it from the planeswalker like makes perfect sense because that's where all the other items are kind of coming into from this world. Um, I don't know. I, I like that magic has those little connections that you have to explore in order to get them to fit together in the fiction. Um, recently we had, well, if we didn't have Mark Rosewater's article, then we had Talion and Abira, the fairy lady, dreaming duelist, um, who are like implied to be or implied to be parent and daughter, and then not really confirmed until I believe the was it the um, commander deck supplement or something along those lines. It is. It was just like a mess of things that you had to piece together in order to figure out their relationship before. Mark Rosewater cleanly confirmed it in his 10 Tall Tales uh, article. Um, Fatima and the Brass Man, who are also another Encyclopedia Dominia exclusive story, um, explains why the Brass Men deal damage, explains that there are more native Robian planeswalkers, and there's a whole world out there that you can explore if you choose to you know, navigate around their 1996 site. So, I don't know. I, I like the story. I like that it took advantage of very, very early web interaction that they could have, which is people just clicking around and trying to find more magic lore. And there was no directory for this. There certainly wasn't because I've had to <laughs> click basically every link that was available in order to archive a lot of these. Yeah, but that's what you did on the internet. Yeah, I just it you was know, would slow. appreciate a directory in 2019 when I was building <laughs> this. So, yeah, um, I was I was busy being one year old, so I didn't exactly get to have the experience. So, so it's really on circa you. Windows XP. Well, yeah, <laughs> they were relying on me for a lot of this. You had a whole year to figure out how to use the internet, and you didn't do it. I'm just. I mean, a little disappointed. I had dial up until an embarrassingly uh, old age. So, yeah. Didn't exactly have the internet experience that everybody else did, which is part of the reason I only got into magic immediately post high school. <laughs> but there you go. Those are my thoughts. Yeah, I think I think I've said everything I have to say about Eater of the Infinite. I I find the writing um to be kind of charming. I think that uh, the the writer did a really whoever whoever the mysterious actual author is, um, Taysir, wherever you are, uh, 
know, I thought that the language was good. I thought that it it felt and had the right cadence for what it was trying to do. Yes, um, it plays into it. I feel like the exact same way that um, the Eldraine main story played into the fairy tale mm-hmm. space, where it's like it doesn't have to smash you over the head with it and like spoon feed you every single thing that you should be noticing. You just get the general vibe from it and you get to experience a story as normal, just with a little twist on it. Yeah, it was a nice it was uh, um, if I say it was a competent little story that feels dry. So that's like not exactly the word I want, but it's not not the word I want. I think it's competent. I don't think it's magic's all time best fiction. No, I think it is a monumental story for them deciding to explore the form. And I'm not like, I'm not saying it's not competent, but like, <laughs> it's just, it's a nice little story. Yeah. But it like, don't read too much into the word nice. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I think it does its job so well. Yeah. yeah. Somebody's going to listen to this episode after having written this story, <laughs> what, 20, 27, 28 years ago and be very upset that you only called it nice. Look, if anyone who's listening to this episode can tell us who the actual author of this story is, uh, I would I would really appreciate it. I think that would be I wonderful. Could, you could probably visit the Oasis webpage, which was the Mirage interactive web fiction. Like, again, Mirage had interactive web fiction in essentially 1996, 1997, and nobody knows about it. Well, that one we can't exactly cover on here because interactive is a little difficult in the audio format but um all of those people were staff writers at the time and um it had a pretty long list of credits for contributing authors so i'm positive their name's probably in the duelist somewhere or um on the oasis site as a contributor yeah, I'm, I I kind of wish we knew who wrote this because I would like to see if they were a person who wrote something for Tapestries or Distant Planes. I have to say Loot Niptal before the episode ends. So there we go. <laughs> Legally need to. I was going to talk about that last week when it's like cute non-twists that happen in Magic Story. Like the Uncharted Realm style of like, okay, like I get what you're doing here. It's cute can't say it's more than that but loot literally being named loot is one of those where i'm like yeah that was <laughs> that was the, a payoff all I, right i don't know if we if we keep hmm, let me start this out these episodes are fun i wasn't on last week but this week's was fun i would like to keep doing them i don't know if it's realistic to do either of the Loot Niptal stories. I don't know if that's out of scope of what we want to do. I I think the Loot Niptal stories are freaking delight. Actually, we cannot do the Loot Niptal stories. I don't want any of us to try to attempt to pronounce his wife's name. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's no, no vowels in there. That's also the difficult of some of these. Um, <laughs> I believe somebody on our Discord brought up names in the last Kamigawa story were kind of... Uh, butchered uh, yeah I mean, hmm. not not exactly names are hard. pronunciation they're mm-hmm. fake fantasy names yeah adapted to a inspired by real world culture setting 
and same with here. I saw I saw the discussion that happened on our server about that, and a lot of the names in that story were apparently just like mashing together of like just nouns and verbs and things, and I'm just like, well, more often if I want to make names that have a cultural feel, I want to look at actual names from the culture. And also, yeah. some to like just use names from the culture. Mm-hmm. That's also help. We had the leader of the Gatewatchers named Gideon. That's just a real name. Jace is just a real name. Liliana's just a real name. Chandra's just a real name. These are just real names. Um, you don't have to make a half-assed fantasy name. Sometimes you can just, if you are trying to hit a cultural touchstone, just use a real name. And oh, what's, uh, what's his name's real name? Who's Helen's dad's re- Ronald. Ronald. <laughs> Ronald. Use, yeah, Ronald. Well, you can't use Ronald anymore because we've already got the one Ronald per multiverse. But <laughs> well, okay, we have two barons. Yeah, you can use Ronald again. We got we got two Kaidos, one non planeswalker, one debatably planeswalker. We'll find out eventually, I guess. Um, but and both are from Kamigawa. I mean. Just kind of a name. That's but like two guys that's... named Tony living in New York City. That's <laughs> outrageous. <laughs> that's like two guys named Tony having lived in New York City in the same thousand year lifespan of that town. You know, impossible. Yeah, I assume we're on final thoughts now. Yeah, we need to. We need to move to final thoughts. Look, I can do little bits for another three hours. We can make this a really long episode. I'm not editing three hours of Lorelai bits. I'm sorry. No, I uh, I listened to the Seanan interview and that was quite a few Lorelai bits. So. No, there was a moment earlier when I the short story joke from earlier in my head. I was like somewhere in the world. Seanan is not laughing at this. Uh, Seanan's great. Seanan, come back on our show. Um, uh, final thoughts. Uh, OK, so I, I have known. I actually knew what my final thought was going to be. Um, and, uh, it does not to do, it does tie back to a bit from the very beginning of the episode. I actually can read, um, spoiler alert. Um, uh, I started reading Dungeon Meshi cause it's finished. And if a comic is finished, I am much more likely to read it because I can just happily binge the entire thing and not binge until I get to the point where it's updating and then fall off because I do not have the attention span to keep up with ongoing comics. Um, but I started Dungeon Meshi. It's spectacular. Um, it's so goofy. Uh, so, so the premise of the story is there's this adventuring party in this dungeon and one of the party members gets eaten by a red dragon, uh, and they have to escape and they want to go back and rescue her, but they don't have a lot of money. So they're like, well, you, t- you two party members sell all your gear and we use the money just resupply me and I'll go and solo it and rescue this other person. And they're like, no, 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 this is stupid. So they decide to, in order to save money and go venturing back into the dungeon, they're not buying any food or bringing any food with them. They're going to subsist entirely on dungeon monsters. Um, And it's really goofy and silly and fun and cute and plays with a lot of like RPG tropes. Like the world they exist in is just mechanically an RPG game. The world functions like an RPG game. It's really silly. Um, the characters are delightful. They're all just morons. Um, 
I'm not very far yet, but uh, I am looking forward to uh, reading more. It is delightful. The anime comes out February or March next year, I think. It's going to be on Netflix, animated by Studio Trigger. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm reading the manga first. So that's my final thought. Read, Dun- read, read Dungeon Meshi. It's, it's delightful. Uh, I don't really have a final thought. Uh, all I've been doing for like this past week is redoing, like, well, not redoing, doing legendary campaigns on Destiny 2 because for like two weeks there, Destiny 2 was basically unplayable because of a bunch of like server attacks that were happening. And now you can actually play it. And so I've just been like trying to get as much done as I can before people mess up another thing I enjoy. So, uh, yeah, I've just kind of been doing that. I did read a really funny article. Not funny. It's kind of sad and tragic. Um, but funny because <laughs> it's uh, so the New Yorker had this article about Sam Bankman Freed, uh, you know, the the former like face of FTX, uh, famously the uh, supporter of uh, magic podcasts out there. Um, and uh, the, the article is really interesting because it's mostly about his parents who this man who uh, used crypto to defraud a bunch of people of their money and then went to the Bahamas to avoid paying taxes Uh, He's the son of two lawyers who specialize in ethics and tax law. Um, So that's fun. But the real funny thing was in the interview, the interviewer mentions that Sam Bankman-Fried is just shuffling a a pile of cards on his desk. And I I had a moment where I could see it clearly in my head that this was like, (laughs) this was definitely a deck of magic cards. Like this, this man definitely was just impulsively shuffling like a draft deck or something. Like I could feel it. You think he and Martin play play one v ones? Martin, Martin Shkreli. Shkreli. <laughs> Oh God! I'd like to go to those commander game nights. For, for a second, oh, I God. thought you were going to say Martin Short, and I was not going to stand for you sullying sullying the name of Martin Short on this podcast. But uh, I I honestly forgot Martin Shkreli is a is a person <laughs> who actually exists. He's he's faded so far from the zeitgeist that it's impossible to drag him back out now oh, hold um, on he was never in the zeitgeist he had 50 minutes of infamy uh in the magic zeitgeist he definitely was because he was threatening to like buy out cards and it was hilarious um yeah strange dudes i will use my final thought to promote my personal website mtglore.com whoa my, my good friend rad has helped me promote it recently and got people actually aware of its existence and i am not a good salesperson and i'm not even trying to sell you on anything if you go there now you can get all of magic story for free if you go there before the end of the week um you can get a good bit of it for free the less of it becomes free the longer you wait after this message to go there um all the books you need to buy anyways but yeah go to mtglore.com search up whatever to your heart's content search up eater of the infinite or rabia the plane and get all of these glorious results about rabia and (laughs) how many rabia stories are there i can't imagine that many i think it gets one cameo in one of the time spiral block novels off the top of my head but yeah you can search by character you can search by planeswalker planeswalkers are characters 
You can search by plane. You can search by author if you just want to read all of Allison's good stories. Um, you can do whatever the hell you want because it's after 10 p.m. So, you know. <laughs> uh, well, oh, well, if I can do whatever the hell I want, then I do because you mentioned him. A special shout out to Radley, my favorite Magic the Gathering content creator. Oh, oh God. You oh. <laughs> can't stand it. <laughs> um, so we did reference earlier um, something about the server. I don't remember what it was, but we have a Discord server. <laughs> Uh, this is this is going this is up there it was, in the, it was in discussion the of the name this used oh right right, right yeah short story. yeah this is uh up there in the uh list of uh top most inelegant segues into the closing part of podcast episodes we've ever done um <laughs> uh we have a discord server for the vorthos cast which you can access by heading to patreon.com uh it is pay to win uh, but what you win is a wonderful community in which uh, Vorthoses from all around the world are discussing magic. We, again, are are closing in on, you know, we're, we're a few weeks out from uh, a new main set story. Uh, we have, I think, the day this episode is out, Doctor Who previews officially start. By officially, I mean we've been getting previews for that product for, like, months now. But, um... I think those happen next week. Um, you know, so we are, we are, the wheels are spinning towards another big magic release. Uh, and so this is an always, always an exciting time to start talking about theories or ideas. We have uh, um, the story panel from Magicon Vegas has been up on YouTube and there's been a lot of speculation happening. Um, won't say who's right, won't say who's wrong, but speculation is happening. And uh, we would love to have you all there. But otherwise, uh, that's it for us tonight. So thank you all for listening. This has been the Vorthos Cast. <laughs>